This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So the biggest thing with mental health these days is anxiety. Um, we're seeing just a massive increase in anxiety in teenagers, I think, in the last decade. And it seems to go hand in hand with depression. I'm working with such an unreliable demographic that sometimes it can be really frustrating, you know, when people are missing their appointments and maybe not following the guidelines as, as well as I'd like. But there's also some really great high moments as well. When they're sending me a photo of their dinner that they cooked. There's some funny lip movements that will often present, some nose twitching type stuff as well. And then we obviously have outside of ticks and sting behaviour, kids that have sort of addictive or compulsive behaviours where, you know, they're always having to tap each of their fingers. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation on mental health, this time with Melbourne nutritionist and researcher Jessica Bays, Brisbane nutritionist Deborah Smart, and we'll hear again from naturopath Emma Wisby. We cover depression and the Mediterranean diet, sleep disturbance and tick disorders, but first, anxiety. Last episode, both Dr. Layla Mason and Emma Wisby identified anxiety as the most prevalent mental health presentation. Brisbane nutritionist Deborah Smart agrees. So the biggest thing with um, with mental health these days is anxiety. <laughs> um, we're seeing just a massive increase in anxiety in teenagers, I think, in the last decade, um, which I can put down to a multiplicity of factors. And it seems to go hand in hand with depression. And there's been recent studies which really do show a very strong genetic link between depression and anxiety and biochemical pathways relating to both, showing that they are really connected to each other. So you can end up in a situation where you've got people who have typically lower levels of, of serotonin, higher levels of dopamine, adrenaline, and they just tend to present with that kind of anxiety and depression together type picture. And I know this is a big question and I'm not expecting you to give the full answer or the full number of reasons, but and I know it is complex, but the cause for this. I saw one study recently, I think it was saying that um, self-harming, as in cutting among teenage girls, cutting had increased by 400% or something in the last decade. It was something absolutely ridiculous. And and, I've, and I'm seeing that, you know, I, I can name numerous teenagers who have been engaging in cutting, uh, who are just, you know, friends and family type thing. Um, 
I believe, of course, as everybody does, that it's very connected to um, to technology and to the use of screens, but not for the reasons why most people say. So a lot of the studies say, oh, you know, it's connected to screens because of social pressures and social media and da-da-da, and I'm sure that is absolutely a factor. But I actually think that it's we, we're rewiring our children's brains. I actually think that looking at a screen and the stimulation of those lights and the flashes and the words and whatever, we are actually stimulating kind of a dopamine overload in our children at a very young age when they really cannot cope with that. And it's leading to patterns of dopaminergic kind of addiction or addictive behaviour around um, dopamine cravings and, and, um, and dopamine. So it's not just, you know, social media and the social pressures of that. It's actually the physiological effects of looking at a screen on these brains. And then sleep gets really badly affected. I think a lot of children are not getting proper sleep. They're not actually achieving REM sleep because they're sleeping with devices and phones with Wi-Fi in their bedrooms, which is now known to disturb REM sleep. Diet is another massive factor. So sugar in the diet, sugar massively impacts cortisol levels, which impacts adrenaline levels. And so you end up with kids on this absolutely wired pathway of of sugar cravings and ups and downs and incredible mood swings connected to that. So yeah, there's all those reasons. <laughs> Plus all the toxicity in the environment and the bad microbiomes and the gut brain connection, you know, I mean, we could go on and on. When you're seeing a teenager in this state, where, where do you start? Because it's hard to take away that device. They have to have them for school now. It's life is kind of centered around these devices I find even with my own kids who've eaten well their whole lives to try and you know when they've now fallen off the wagon it's hard to get them back on to be honest so how do you do that in clinic excellent excellent question I think I think sports is absolutely important I really see that kids that are engaging in regular sports activities and team sports have much better mental health than those that don't and it's because they're getting screen-free time. They're getting extended periods of screen-free time. And somehow for kids that aren't really loving sports or music or whatever you know else might get them away from their screens, we've got to enforce big blocks, big chunks of screen-free time for our kids. It can't be the thing that they're using all the time during their school hours and then coming home and using for their recreation because it's actually not going to give them any relaxation of the brain, any time out basically. And you see there's some really good programs even on those little YouTube videos and things on doing um, what they call dopamine detoxes because of the stimulation of dopamine from constant screen use. And it it becomes a self-perpetuating thing where they're actually just craving, craving all the time and they actually feel this addiction to their screen that they feel extremely stressed and distressed if you try to take it off them. And it really just is a matter of parents understanding this and being the adult and making sure that their children are forced to have some time away from those screens so that they can settle those brains down and really break the cycle of addiction that's going on for them. It's got to be about that self-discipline and not just doing what you feel like in the moment because it's going to lead to bad outcomes. And we're starting to see more and more these young adults now in their 19, 19, 20, 21-year-olds who have grown up with the screens right through those years really falling apart in early university life because they can't concentrate 
I was actually quite shocked by the number of, of, of kids in my son's year that ended up dropping out of uni early on and just not being able to apply themselves the way we did back in my day. And I think it was just, it's just that inability to focus and to concentrate because they're used to this incredible overstimulation all the time. So they sit down to do an assignment, which is meant to be focused on a particular topic. They're doing it on their screen, which keeps flashing little messages to them about their social media networks or about a message from somebody or whatever. And they're being constantly distracted all the time. And, you know, they sit down on YouTube and they watch that video and then the prompt comes up for the next video and it just becomes, you know, just, their brains are just sort of drinking in all sorts of information, but it's all over the place and there's no focus for them. And, and I think a lot of them are actually recognising that this is a problem and we're starting to see, I'm starting to see in my son's generation, kids who are choosing blackouts. They're choosing to go weeks at a time with social media and technological blackouts because they can, they're feeling the benefit of that time out and realising that, it that it's really important and that it has been a problem in their teenage years and childhood that they didn't have that. And that's, I guess, where we need to start, isn't it? Kind of starting at that very young age and, and understanding the long-term consequences of these devices. It's just got to be about parents being parents again and recognising the importance of it. I think somebody said that Steve Jobs never allowed his children to have a device. I think he might have said it in an interview once. He recognised himself. The things that he was inventing were not safe for his own children. How do you personally, if you have a teenager in clinic that, you, you know, you can see that their diet is not fantastic, how do you start making those incremental changes? It depends, obviously, on how motivated the client is. And um, teenagers that are really suffering from a lot of anxiety can often be quite highly motivated if you, if you can explain to them how their diet is contributing to their anxiety. I think uh, the biggest thing, obviously, is sugar. And unfortunately, there really isn't any you know, easy way out of sugar addiction apart from sheer self-discipline, I find. And so it's really just talking to them about, you know, having that motivation to do that. The other thing that I do a lot of with teenagers is looking at um, genetics and, you know, helping them to see from a genetic point of view how their biochemical pathways might be part of that picture or part of the basis for why they've been more susceptible to things like, you know, dopamine addictive behaviours or or depression or anxiety and and helping them to make good food choices around the nutrients that they they need because genetically they have trouble with um with having enough of those nutrients to help balance their um, neurotransmitters and so I, f- I find that genetics is very useful in the treatment of um, mental health disorders in both adolescents and adults. What is your philosophy, particularly with kids, I guess, and even teenagers, what's your philosophy around supplementation versus food? My philosophy is, of course, food is best, but the reality is that lots of diets are, um, are inadequate for whatever reason, particularly when you're dealing with kids perhaps with anxiety or ASD. There'll be fussiness around food. There'll be texture issues with food. There'll be even visual issues with food where, you know, some kids will only eat white foods or whatever it might be. And so you've got to be very, very careful to make sure that their nutrient intake is complete in those situations and be realistic about the fact that they're just not going to have a diet that's ever going to be adequate enough to fulfill their basic needs for um, supporting a healthy brain and healthy mood balance. The other thing is I, I also think that it's we just have to acknowledge the fact that in nutritional biochemistry and in, in terms of nutrigenomics, 
the reality is that the reason why some of these kids have this genetic propensity towards developing mental health issues like anxiety and depression, uh, which runs in their family, is because they have nutrient uptake issues genetically. So whether it be vitamin D pathway issues, which are strongly implicated in, you know, depression, anxiety, um, you know, obviously also autoimmune diseases, et cetera, as well. But yeah, being being able to realistically go, well, they're just not going to get as much vitamin D as the next person from the same level of sunlight or vitamin D-rich foods. They're going to need a bit more of a supplement to boost those levels. It might be folate, might be B12, it might be zinc, you know, in the case of some genetic conditions which cause more more zinc to be lost from the body. B6 pathway issues, obviously, zinc and B6 working together in that neurotransmitter, BH4 cycle. Um, so, you know, we have to face the fact that two people may be eating exactly the same diet and absorbing completely different levels of the nutrients in those foods because of their genetics or because of digestive issues, etc. Jessica Bays is a nutritionist based in Melbourne and has been looking at the impact of the Mediterranean diet on the mental health of men in their late teens and early 20s. I am currently running a randomised control trial looking at a dietary intervention for treating depression in young men. So this makes up the um, largest project in my PhD. So previous to that, I've done some literature reviews and some surveys as well, but the, the control trial is the funded. <laughs> and we're, like I said, we're looking at a Mediterranean diet. Um, we're looking at the Bex Depression Inventory Scale as our main outcome measure, but we're also looking at the World Health Organization's quality of life, as well as markers for sleep, for energy levels and for stress as well. And why in particular this age group, the 18 to 25s, why did you choose them? This is a really fun age group. Um, they have additional challenges. So many young people are moving out of home and they're starting to have to pay for things for themselves for the first time. Uh, and even with a mental health care plan, psychology appointments can be really expensive. And it's not uncommon for me to hear that they are on sometimes three-month wait lists to see their uni psychologist, for example. Um, and many young people are still very reluctant to go down the path of antidepressants as well. And we know that there are additional risk of side effects from antidepressants for people under the age of 25 as well. We also know that the ages 18 to 25 really represent um, a time when many young people are taking control of their food choices for the first time. They might be living out of home for the first time and perhaps learning to cook or just going crazy with um, events and functions and enjoying all the fast food and all the alcohol. <laughs> so if we can make dietary change in young people, we set them up for the rest of their life with having good, you know, healthy habits and knowing how to cook and things like that. Um, so there's really a lot of room for improvement and change in that age group. Absolutely. You've just hit one of my loves, actually. I have my own teenagers and I teach cooking classes to kids for this very reason. So how do you find their their cooking skills? I know you mentioned that, that they're paying for things themselves, they're making their own choices, but where is their cooking skill at? Um, mostly non-existent for the majority of my participants. A lot don't realise how much food costs. So when they are going to the shops, the first time and start putting things in their trolley and see it sort of adding up and go, oh, this is more expensive than I thought. So they're going for the cheaper, usually poorer quality 
uh, less fruit and uh, fruit and veg. And when I'm talking to a lot of these young men in the, in the trial, a lot of them don't have a lot of cooking equipment as well. You know, they don't, and they might have a frying pan and that's about it. Um, they certainly don't have blenders and food processors and, you know, all the things that we would use quite often. And particularly for those living in student accommodation, perhaps they have a, a shared kitchen and they don't want to leave lots of their own food in the communal fridge because people will take their food or perhaps break their, you know, if they have a nice set of knives, they would be worried about them going missing. So it's definitely challenging. And um, the participants that have been part of your study, were they diagnosed or have they been diagnosed with a depressive disorder? So they have clinical depression um, as been diagnosed by their, their GP. And we also get them to do the depression scale at the beginning. So we're including people that have moderate to severe depression. Um, so some of them are really high on that end of, of the, the scale. And it's really impacting their quality of life, like to the point where they, they don't leave their house and they have no energy to get up and it's impacting their, their studies. So more and more research is showing that if we can try and help people with depression, or young people with depression, you know, it has this knock-on effect for the rest of their life. It affects their studies and their ability to get a job. You know, they're going to see the knock-on effect from that. And so for the purposes of your study, what is a Mediterranean diet? What did you ask them to do? Yeah, so I always start by asking them, <laughs> what do you think a Mediterranean diet is? And I get all sorts of answers, kind of my favourite part. <laughs> and most of them say, I have no idea. Um, or, or fish, maybe, olive oil. <laughs> You know, it's mostly a sensible, healthy eating sort of plan. So lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, fish. We get them to have three serves of olive oil. That's quite important. So a serve is a tablespoon. And most of them look at me like, oh, how can I have three tablespoons of olive oil a day? But it's quite easy, you know, when you're cooking or just dipping some nice sourdough bread, you know, in some olive oil. How, how nice is that? Um, uh, nuts and seeds. We try and get them to reduce their processed meat consumption, which a lot of them are having a lot of, particularly if they're having a lot of fast food, um, takeaway, McDonald's. Some of them are having bacon, you know, three times a day. So that they struggle with quite often. And cutting out the junk, of course, is probably the main part. You know, cutting out the donuts and the chocolate and the energy drinks. So can you just actually, that's a really good point. Can you tell me what um, what kind of diet or diets you started with? Like what, what was there, you know, prior to them changing to your Mediterranean diet, what were you working with to start with? So as part of the inclusion criteria, we send them to do the CSIRO healthy diet quiz, which you can do online. And it asks about all different aspects of your diet, you know, how many how often you eat fruit and certain whole grains and things like that. And it gives you a score out of 100 once you've got to the end of that quiz. I think the average, um, and, and so many people have done this particular, um, the CSIRO healthy diet quiz, I think it's you know, thousands and thousands of people. So they have an average that they can then um, tell you sort of where you sit, which is quite fun um, for a lot of people. And we're looking for people that have generally quite poor diets, so sort of under 40 on that score out of 100. I think most people sit around, you know, 20 out of 100 on that score. And so when you're getting a score of 20 out of 100, what kinds of things are you eating? So generally, um, they're eating a lot of processed foods. They're not eating much fresh food. They're eating a lot of sugar, a lot of salt, a lot of packaged food. A really poor diet, basically. <laughs> 
So can you tell me now about the the best bit? What what are some of the results that you found? <laughs> oh, the results are amazing. I'm so excited. Um, the results are really, really good. So in the diet group, they are doing so well. I mean, we've got some participants whose score on that depression scale was really severe. It was up around, you know, 40, 50, who just after the six weeks, so halfway through, have come down to a score of 12. And then by the end, come down under 10. So under 10 is no longer clinically depressed. It has been incredible. And we get them to do a end of project evaluation survey where we kind of say, what did you like about it? What did you hate? How can we make it better? Um, what was the response from your friends and your family? And ask all those nitty gritty so we can go, okay, how can we take this and put that in a real life situation, implement that in real clinical practice? And some of the the feedback we've been getting is that they had to learn to cook, you know, and it forced them to try new food that they'd never tried before. That was really interesting. But interestingly was that the reaction of their family was really positive, but that of their friends was negative. You know, they would be teased. They would be, you know, they would be going out, you know, to Hungry Jacks with their mates and they'd be like, ha-ha, you can't get chips. You know, you're having a salad, Um, which I think is very telling about the attitudes of young people, particularly young men, about diet and diet culture and that that's for women or that makes you weak or those sorts of things. So I think that's a real genuine barrier when we're talking to young people in clinical practice about how to approach that. Um, But the overwhelming response has been, I am so glad I did it. I'm going to continue with it into the future. And so I guess given that they've had such significant changes, does that give you confidence that they will maintain those habits? Yes, absolutely. And when they do that end of project evaluation survey, that is anonymous. So they don't have to answer a certain way just to please me. says, you know, how likely are you to continue? Um, you know, like very likely, somewhat likely. And everyone is ticked likely. Most of ticks very likely. And then at the end, they can just write any additional comments that they may have. You know, it's not prompting any particular answer. It's just anything else you want to write. And almost all of them have written that they're going to continue with it. And, you know, it's something they know they can fall back on. You know, they maybe won't eat a perfect diet for the rest of their life. But, you know, if they feel their mental health dipping, they know that they can draw on that as a resource, as a tool to help support their mental health. So given that dramatic change, does that mean that some of them who might have been on medication have been able to come off? Yeah. So we asked them not to change anything too much in terms of medications during the study, just so we know if changes occur, um, either getting better or getting worse, we know it was the intervention. Obviously, we can't completely stop them. That would be unethical. But so many of them get to the end and go, I've booked an appointment. I'm going to see my doctor. I'm going to come off my meds which is incredible. Many of them, just before joining, said, look, my doctor has prescribed this. I'm hesitant to start. I haven't filled my script yet. I want to give this a go first. And if this doesn't work, then I'll take the the, the drugs. And have got to a point where they're like, I don't need them now. (laughs) So it's been great. And um, you mentioned that you peer-reviewed some papers on the link between nutrients and mood in younger children. Is there anything that you can say about the results of those or what you've read? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think one of them was an evidence gap map, which was looking at, okay, where do we have lots of evidence and we don't need any more and where do we maybe need to delve further into? 
And it also talked about lots of the um, experimental research and, and what nutrients they've been on. So going back to those micronutrient deficiencies, quite a lot have been looked at in children and adolescents. So deficiencies in iron, calcium, potassium, vitamin D, folate, B12 have all been shown in children to be associated with increased depression. And in terms of the experimental research, they've looked at a few that have been showing promise, including vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C and iron, have all shown in randomised control trials um, with a placebo to be um, effective at varying different dosages. Folate has been mixed um, in the two studies that they've done in children. So that's because one study used folic acid and one study used 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, and that was the one that showed it to be effective, go for that. Um, so there's more and more stuff coming out, um, which is really, really good to see. But these literature reviews that I've peer reviewed have said that there is evidence that certain nutrients are really supportive in children and adolescents, but there still isn't enough evidence to start recommending that in clinical practice. And that's more aimed at doctors, I think, rather than functional medicine practitioners and naturopaths and nutritionists. Another important aspect to consider when addressing mental health is a patient's sleep. And the thing that's really profound now, I think, Tony, is about five, even ten years ago, kids would present with acute sleep issues, whereas now I've got kids presenting where mum's bringing in a nine-year-old and saying they've never slept or they've never settled, they've never settled without me in the room. It's just a, you know, it's been too many years of sleep being an issue. Family naturopath Emma Wisby from our last episode. The pandemic, I think, um, highlighted this for a lot of families. And I think people uh, prior to the pandemic were sort of okay to just deal with kids that were bad sleepers, whereas as now, um, you know, there's sort of that drive to fix that and improve upon sleep. But sleep's huge. It's massive. And the research that comes out on sleep is um, very straightforward. The better we sleep, the healthier we are. There's just no two ways about it. So it's important. So what is it about that nine-year-old that comes in and he's never been able to settle without his mum in the room? Like, where do you start with a child like that? Have there been, you know, grommets, tonsils out, surgeries? Have there been numerous courses of antibiotics? What does that child's microbiome look like? I do find there is a really profound um, connection between gut health and sleep. And I do often find that kids that don't sleep have comorbidities of constipation issues or nausea or appetite loss, etc. Um, so anything that we can sort of uh, find out as far as gut health goes can be really useful. And that will involve sort of looking at, like I said, pregnancy, birth, surgeries, illnesses, antibiotic prescription. Um, if we're looking at um, the child, obviously we need to look at their environment as well, ensuring, you know, that it's a healthy environment, that they're not, you know, we can look at sort of building biology concepts and ensuring that they're not, you know, sleeping in the room where the Wi-Fi router is, et cetera. And with respect to the gut side of things, are there any tests that you like to do? Not, again, not so much with 
little ones. Um, I'm always cautious with gut testing and kids because mum will often sit there scratching her head saying, well, I've come for sleep and she's sent me off for, you know, $300 worth of stool analysis. Um, So really, again, it's sort of case taking, ensuring that their diet's right, ensuring that their gut health's right. I often get kids to sort of look at the Bristol stool chart and if they're really keen on looking at poo, take a, a copy of it home with them. And I'll often get them to diarise what their poo looks like as well so you know is it chicken nuggets is it you know soft and sloppy um does it look like a nice healthy sausage because that can give us a heap of clues and cost little to no money another common mental health presentation that emma treats is ticks do you see mostly motor or vocal ticks motor and there's uh my thoughts since this has been presenting in clinic is that there's kind of a whole big spectrum of this category. Um, Ticks are different to STEM behaviours. STEM behaviours go a lot hand in hand with um, ASD diagnoses and STEM behaviour is subconscious and self-soothing, whereas a tick is more of an involuntary action. And with, with kids, it's starting to present sort of late primary school years, early high school. And it's usually things like blinking. Um, There's some funny lip movements that will often present, some nose twitching type stuff as well. And then we obviously have outside of tics and stim behaviour, kids that have sort of more uh, sort of addictive or compulsive behaviours where, you know, they're always having to tap each of their fingers or they're always needing to, I mean, we've seen Rafael Nadal play tennis, that type of, of thing falls into this similar category. And although they're all quite different, um, the way that we sort of look at them clinically and the sorts of nutrients we might prescribe are quite similar. So how would you approach a case like this? So, again, I've had great results with the mineral combinations and I do get good results with glycine there as well. I've got a couple of teenagers that I've uh, looked at. We've done pathology testing and looked at copper-zinc ratios, looked at potential pyrroles, also looked at SAMSAR ratios, which sort of fit into that whole idea. Um, With teenagers, I do often like to use the mood disorder appraisal and through that sort of get a gauge of histamine as well. Histamine as a neurotransmitter is our arousing neurotransmitter. It's quite stimulating. And I do often find these kids have uh, indicators of potentially high histamine. So we can sort of look at, at lowering that in some way, shape or form as well. So what would you do for for high histamine? In regards to high high histamine, so vitamin B3 works quite well there, but also we tend to see in these kids, um, there often is that pyrrole type picture too. So any type of really good quality B complex can work quite well rather than just singling out those individual uh, nutrients. Um, I do find glycine works quite well if we're looking at histamine and um, even things coming in through the diet like salicylates. So glycine can fit into that little picture. And then looking at sort of uh, things like N-acetylcysteine. Um, N-acetylcysteine is quite good when it comes to obviously glutathione production and, and clearance pathways as well. So if you're seeing if there's high histamine in these patients, would you also be seeing other symptoms of the high histamine in them? We can, but it varies though. Um, Often I find with ticks, my experience so far has been no other symptoms and no other nervous system symptoms even. So these kids are usually 
doing really well at school, their teachers love them, they've got good friendship groups, they're sleeping really well at night. Um, I've got a couple at the moment whose diets are exceptional, their mums are really health conscious and cook things from scratch. So it is a really tricky one because often it comes in isolation and it's just a matter of determining what their um, nutritional predisposition is and if there's anything that we can do about it. So in those ones that, um, that you were just talking about, what was the cause? Have you been able to isolate it yet? One uh, had particularly high copper levels. Um, we're not actually sure why, but once we started to look at a bit of a detoxification regime, we got much better results. So we still get results with things like magnesium. Um, and like I said, I use a fair bit of glycine in my practice. So we get good results there. But with this particular patient, we did do a bit of testing and find that her copper was particularly high. So we sort of adjusted zinc levels to counteract that, looked at detoxification pathways and, and got some good results. Another patient was a little bit different. We didn't do testing with him, but we simply just um, added the alkalizing minerals in the, a, a newer formulation and, and that has seemed to have worked overnight for him. It's worked really, really well. And I think in his case, it may be more to do with that electrolyte balance and, and what the um, electrical conductivity of the nervous system looks like. I think Jessica sums it up best when she describes how it feels to work with people who have mental health presentations. Yeah, so it's really, really rewarding. I mean, I'm working with such an unreliable demographic that sometimes it can be really frustrating, you know, when people, you know, are missing their appointments and, you know, maybe not following the guidelines as, as well as I'd like. But there's also some really great high moments as well, you know, when they're sending me a photo of their dinner that they cooked and how excited they are or, you know, um, certain things like, oh, I wasn't sure how to cook a sweet potato. I made the sweet potato mash. Yay. <laughs> you know, and kind of being with them through that whole journey is really, really rewarding, um, particularly even after many of them have finished the study and they said, you know, uh, I got a job, you know, and when they first started, they couldn't leave their room you know they weren't showering or shaving and now they're telling me oh I got a job I'm going out I'm being productive members of society <laughs> um and knowing that I you know helped in some small way is it's, it's super rewarding In our next and final episode of season one of Between Clinical Minds, we talk to Melbourne dietitian Rocco DiVincenzo and naturopaths Amanda Howe and Tabitha McIntosh about their metabolic patient profiles. We explore causes and potential solutions. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. 